Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. So thank you, Dr. Cates, for being with us. We have a, a, a special person that would like to introduce you, uh, if that's okay. <laughs> good morning. Good morning, everybody. And welcome, welcome back to New York, Matt. Max. It's, uh, I know it's a, a virtual visit, but we really appreciate you taking the time out. And uh, it's really my honor and pleasure to introduce Max Cates, who, although not officially uh, alumni of our institution, did spend a year doing uh, clinical research with us. And Max, along with multiple other alumni from our place, have made the decision to move down to Baltimore and join Johns Hopkins. And it's really been New York's loss and Baltimore's gain. But I'll say out of all the alumni that have left Columbia to go to Hopkins, Max is the only one that's intelligent enough to pursue an academic career in bladder cancer. So that makes him very specifically uh, unique and, and somebody that I'm even more proud of. So he's a master of both non-muscle invasive and muscle invasive bladder cancer, is a rapidly rising star in our field. And I really look forward to hearing his thoughts on muscle invasive bladder cancer. Welcome, Max. Oh, thank you so much. Um, you know, we just finished, uh, Jews just finished Passover, and we always see at the end next year uh, in Jerusalem, and maybe it'll be next year in New York. There you go. All right, so I have no disclosures relevant to this talk, other than to tell you, you know, the Empire Urology series is is a New York series. I'm, I, I viewed Mount Sinai and, and Columbia as two homes, and so uh, I feel very uh, blessed to be able to speak to all of you. But it really this week should be called the evidence of multiple esteemed people interested in bladder cancer resident education because this week you guys had and have an amazing uh, group of, of bladder cancer experts talking to you. And so when I looked at your curriculum, I decided it would make most sense to try to speak around what you're already uh, learning. So what I'm going to cover are some basics of clinical muscle invasive bladder cancer, um, spending particular f emphasis on core curriculum, guidelines, and randomized controlled trials. I'm specifically not going to be talking about urinary diversion because you're going to be hearing about that tomorrow uh, with Dr. Bachner. And I'll also leave out advanced disease or metastatic disease because you're going to be speaking, hearing about that from Dr. Sternberg. So this was the old paradigm, essentially. Um, if you had non-muscle invasive disease, you saw a urologist who would give you BCG and possibly remove your bladder. If you had a muscle invasive disease, you, you'd see a urologist get your bladder out. And if you had metastatic disease, you'd go see a medical oncologist. But now we're in a era of where it's not so simple. My wife saw this slide and said, you can't show them this slide. It's too confusing. Uh, and I, the reality is it can be, and this is why bladder cancer today is a multidisciplinary field. I see 80% of my patients, and some of them are non-muscle invasive, muscle invasive, and metastatic disease. I see them with uh, Dr. Hahn, Noah Hahn, or Jeannie Hoffman Census, the medical oncologist uh, who focuses on bladder cancer. The reason being is that we're giving systemic therapies for non-muscle invasive disease. We're doing local therapies for metastatic disease, and it's really a all-hands-on-deck approach. And the radiation oncologist is increasingly involved um, in how we manage this disease as well. 
So as you all know, uh, bladder cancer is extremely common. Looking at the, the statistic, you know, seventh most globally most common, number four uh, uh, most common cancer among men uh, in the United States. What's interesting to me though is that its rate, and you can see here, I hope you can see the, the arrow, uh, but the rate has been relatively constant as other cancers have decreased. You know, lung cancer in particular, uh, attributable to smoking, has been decreasing. And uh, bladder cancer, of which 30 to 40% are attributable, uh, attributable to smoking, has not changed at all. And so this speaks to the, uh, the amount that basically I interpret this as what needs, still needs to be done in order to, um, in order to start decreasing this curve. For the origins of bladder cancer staging, this is one of my uh, favorite papers. 1946, Hugh Jewett and George Strong published an autopsy series of 118 cases. And basically what they did is they took patients who had died of bladder cancer and said, how many of those patients have lymph node involvement? How many of those patients have met uh, concomitant metastases? And from that, they uh, calculated what is the potentially what is the curability of this patient? And what that allowed them to do is group patients in, uh, into uh, staging. And this is the old uh, Jewett staging that then got updated and updated and updated until you get to our modern staging system, which is actually very similar. And it's important to think when we think about staging, staging is really trying to assess prognosis. So does it really matter if the cancer cell is invading into the muscle? What does that say about the prognosis? And that's what the Jewett staging originally did. And so as we can see, the reason why we think about bladder cancer as being so different from non-muscle invasive to muscle invasive is really about the five-year stage specific survival, which goes from 98% um, with early stage disease to 88% with invasive disease to 63% with muscle invasive disease and actually 46% uh, with T3 and T4 and on. Um, what's interesting to me is that there is there are major drop-offs, not just muscle non-muscle invasive to muscle invasive. It's just that we have some difficulties figuring out um, some of these other things. For example, the difference between uh, stage two and stage three or T2 and T3A is incredibly difficult clinically. Uh, an MRI is still not good enough. CT scans certainly are not good enough. So to make that clinical differentiation uh, is challenging, but the five-year survival um, does go down as well. So this is important to keep in mind. So I'm gonna be focusing some, most of this talk, uh, kind of scaffolding it around the uh, 2017 guidelines. And let's just jump right in with the role of new adjuvant and adjuvant uh, therapy. So the guidelines state that clinicians should offer cisplatin-based new adjuvant chemotherapy to eligible radical cystectomy cancer patients, and that's a strong recommendation. And similarly, if they are not eligible for platinum, uh, either because they have poor kidney function, uh, hearing loss, neuropathies. There are several, there are many reasons why uh, a patient um, should not get platinum. Those patients should not get carboplatin-based neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, 
And that is, uh, that is in the guidelines. Uh, additionally, uh, patients who are not offered cisplatin-based chemotherapy, and this is uh, statement nine, and have non-organ confined disease, so node positive or T3 or T4 disease, those patients should be offered adjuvant chemotherapy. And this comes up quite a bit. Uh, patients uh, can't get neoadjuvant chemotherapy for many different reasons. Um, they're symptomatic, they're bleeding, um, just to name two. And then their bladder comes out and they have advanced disease. Those patients should be offered chemotherapy. Where does this statement about neoadjuvant chemotherapy come from? So at the end of this talk, uh, there's going to be about uh, probably six to 10 articles with hyperlinks, and, up, uh, and those will be available to you with kind of what I consider the made, most important uh, papers that if you're not going into oncology, you're not going into bladder cancer, um, you should still be familiar with. This is one of them. And I'll, I'll also put those on Twitter as well. Uh, so this is uh, the Grossman trial at uh, New England Journal, 2003. And patients were randomized to cystectomy versus MVAC. With cystectomy, they were stratified based on age and uh, clinical tumor stage. Uh, very interesting, the age that they were stratified on is 65. Uh, for those of, of you that take care of bladder cancer patients, you'll probably recognize that 65 is the, is the lowest quartile uh, of patients. The average age of our patients are 75. So uh, that probably, uh, over overstates the the younger population a little bit, but regardless, uh, they were stratified on age and, and tumor stage. And essentially, there's many different ways to interpret uh, this trial. So I'm going to interpret it in the way I choose to, but you will hear different people interpret it differently. And I'm just moving my Zoom thing around so I can access everything. Um, but the way I interpret it is that the Median survival uh, at a at a that a medium follow up of over eight years is seventy seven months versus forty six months. Um, there was a difference of ten deaths, so ninety deaths in the MVAC with cystectomy arm, the neoadjuvant chemo arm, versus a hundred deaths in the cystectomy arm. So people will uh, uh, spin that as an absolute value, an absolute difference, which actually sounds less. It's in the single digits. But when you actually break it down to what is the difference in median survival, it's 77 months versus 46 months. And furthermore, when you look at this median survival difference stratified by age and clinical stage, it holds true and is significant. So it doesn't matter if patients are older than 65 or younger than 65 there is a, a, a clear and significant difference in median survival. It also uh, does not matter if they're T2 or T3, T4A. Um, you know, you'll, you'll hear arguments that um, neoadjuvant chemo should be reserved just for uh, T3 or T4A. But if you actually look at the data, you'll see that the median survival difference in terms of, of months is, is significantly different um, no matter how you stratify the data. So, um, I, I interpret this as clear and definitive um, support for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Additionally, not and not surprisingly, uh, this over. I'm not a Zoom professional, so I'm I'm constantly moving my 
the windows over so I can see the slide. Um, more patients in the neoadjuvant chemo arm were PT0 uh, compared to the cystectomy alone arm. So what that essentially means is that uh, neoadjuvant chemo tracks with survival. It's associated with improved survival, but it's also associated with improved complete response. So at the time of cystectomy, there's no cancer in the bladder. And the rate of that in the neoadjuvant chemotherapy arm was 38% versus 15% in the cystectomy alone arm. And this brings up an important point, um, which is that 15% in which the, the bladder was removed and there was no cancer there and the patients did not get chemo, that essentially means that the TURBT alone uh, cured their disease. That, that is the way I interpret that. And that was 15% of the time. And this brings up an important point, which is no matter the treatment paradigm, a high quality TURBT is the most important aspect of any bladder cancer management strategy. So when I have a patient who is referred in, and this is the most common referral uh, you know, I have with a, a pre-existing diagnosis of muscle invasive bladder cancer, I do my very best to take them to the operating room for a repeat TURBT before they go on to chemo. The reason being, if they're gonna be a responder uh, to chemo, then great. But if they have a bladder cancer biology that makes them resistant to receiving chemo, that, that is not gonna address, the chemo is not gonna address that cancer, and they're gonna have a lot of residual disease, then I could potentially cure them of that chemo-resistant tumor just with my TURBT before I send them to chemo, and I won't have wasted three or four months. So that's why I try to take as many patients as possible to the operating room for a complete radical, however you want to call it, TURBT before um, they are getting new adjuvant chemotherapy. And, and, and so we also looked at this in our group and basically this was a retrospective study where we wanted to try to figure out, well, what percent of chemo response is just from the TURBT? So what we did is we took a historic sample of patients who had gotten uh, neoadjuvant chemo. We took a similar group of patients that had gotten uh, uh, no neoadjuvant chemotherapy, just the cystectomy. And we looked at the PT zero rate and we also looked at partial response rate. So uh, that's including uh, T1 and, and non-invasive disease. And what we essentially found, and I won't get into the methods, but that around in a, a multivariate uh, uh, logistic regression model, 40% uh, of therapeutic response could be attributed to TRBT. This is uh, Dr. Her's data, which essentially shows that there, there are patients out there, and quite a few, that are and can be managed with uh, TURBT uh, alone. And I'm not advocating this, but um, I'm basically using this as another way to say that the TURBT is an essential component of, uh, of the muscle invasive bladder cancer management strategy. So this is a, a thought-provoking paper that I enjoyed from the group at Columbia. And it says, okay, so if I just showed you data that the TURBT, uh, that neoadjuvant chemo tracks closely to progression-free survival and to overall survival and to CR, meaning complete response. Why do we need to remove the bladder after a complete response? 
And in fact, in, in this study, which was a combination of Memorial uh, Sloan Kettering and Columbia, uh, they denied. So patients who had a clinical complete response after neoadjuvant chemo were monitored with uh, surveillance. And essentially what they showed in many of the people are on this, uh, on this Zoom, uh, I see their faces, but essentially what they showed is that uh, the, in a highly select group of people from two institutions that are very comfortable managing these types of patients in this way, uh, five-year disease-specific survival was 90%, um, and, uh, and patients could be uh, in five-year cystectomy-free uh, survival, which I think is a really important metric, was 76%. Around this uh, same time or sort of uh, what's also been going on is that there's been, and this talk is primarily clinical focused, but uh, we, can't, we can't ignore what's going on in, in bladder cancer biology, is DNA damage repair mutations have been shown to predict response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. In this study uh, by Dr. Klimak from Fox Chase, uh, she looked at ATM, RB1, and uh, FANCC, and uh, also ERCC2 has also been implicated in this. But these uh, uh, genomic alterations have been shown to uh, be associated with response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And so based on that uh, is the schema for a couple trials. Um, this is one of the trials, which is patients undergo a TURBT. They're then sequenced, and if they have, and this is one that is out of Fox Chase, but and we've opened up, we have opened at Hopkins. If they have one of four uh, genomic mutations, and uh, if they are a complete responder to chemotherapy, they're managed with surveillance. Um, and if they relapse with uh, muscle invasive cancer, um, they go on to definitive, to definitive therapy. If they relapse with a non-muscle invasive cancer, then it's a little bit complicated. It's the physician's choice with the patient, um, but it's, it's all protocolized. Um, and I think this is a thoughtful way to do it. However, also uh, something to keep in mind is there are a lot of problems with uh, the way we stage after neoadjuvant chemo. This is a study out of our institution that essentially shows that in uh, up to 50% or approaching 50% of patients that we think are CT0 or complete responders to chemo, we're wrong. So we think they're CT0, we remove the bladder anyway, because that's standard of care. And we're surprised to find that up to half still have evidence of disease and more than 20%, 22% have residual muscle invasive bladder cancer. So this is food for thought as we uh, generate paradigms that are sort of outside of our guidelines and outside of our standard of care that are trying to push the field forward. Uh, we need to do this thoughtfully and I, and I think we are, but this is a major issue as we, as we uh, think about how to preserve bladders. So, in addition to neoadjuvant chemotherapy, many are looking at neoadjuvant immunotherapy. This is the uh, a phase two trial out of Europe. Uh, the pure uh, one study that looked at neoadjuvant pembrolizumab was published in Journal of Clinical Oncology uh, within the last 
two years. And what they did is they gave uh, three weekly cycles of pembrolizumab uh, before cystectomy, then uh, d uh, did cystectomy um, and, um, and uh, assess assessed pathologic CR, as well as a host of translational uh, components of the study. And basically what they found is that the pathologic complete response weight, which was their primary endpoint, was 42% in all comers. And this was a small study, 50 patients. Uh, but in patients who, but uh, CR was highly associated with uh, PDL1 antibody stating on. Look out for uh, I think that some people have their uh, mute off. If you could just put your mute on. Um, was highly associated with PDL1 antibody staining. And so this has informed um, other trials that are similarly uh, trying to approach patients who are not candidates for uh, neoadjuvant platinum-based chemotherapy um, to try to uh, give them other neoadjuvant therapies uh, prior to uh, cystectomy. So let's move on. What, what do the guidelines say about principles of cystectomy? When performing uh, a standard radical cystectomy, clinicians should remove the bladder, prostate, and seminal vesicles in males and should remove the bladder, uterus, fallopian tubes, ovaries, and the anterior vaginal wall in females. And so I'm going to challenge that a little bit in the next slide. Let's just keep, keep going. Uh, clinicians should discuss and, and consider sexual function preserving procedures for patients with organ-confined disease and absence of bladder, neck, urethra, and prostate. So 30 years ago, uh, this is the way a review article about uh, uh, radical cystectomy in a female patient looked. And, and I, this is not a criticism of these authors, but this was just how it was thought of, radical cystectomy and in parentheses, anterior, anterior exoneration. Um, I can tell you, I, I do not view those two things as the same operation. Um, and I think increasingly, most people who are treating bladder cancer um, appreciate that the ovaries do not need to always be removed, and in fact, usually do not, that the uterus um, and vagina often can be spared. And, um, and there's a lot of movement to be more thoughtful about this. And the context is that, uh, you know, in prostate cancer, I think we're so well trained to discuss sexual function with all our patients. I mean, if you don't have a shim on a uh, new prostate cancer patient as a resident, uh, so something's the matter, like you've done something wrong. And yet in bladder cancer, um, we're less trained to discuss uh, sexual function with our patients. And I would, and this is a survey done by uh, uh, Natasha Gupta from our group that essentially uh, looked at academic urologists and what percent are discussing sexual function with their patients. And the vast majority are not discussing sexual function um, with male or female patients. And I would say that uh, this is even more true uh, among uh, uh, female patients that uh, physicians are just not comfortable uh, speaking to them about sexual function. And that's incredibly important 
if the patient has a muscle invasive tumor, there's no suspicion for uh, invasion into the uterus. Uh, there's no suspicion for invasion into the vagina. MRIs are actually pretty good at delineating that uh, nowadays, as well as an examination under anesthesia. Uh, they're sexually active and want to preserve their sexual activity. I mean, th that's a that is uh, not an uncommon patient, and um, I think that there's a lot of reasons for it. We're biased, as this study showed, towards patients being older age, um, and as we know, that 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 should not um, impact the way we discuss this with them. But um, I, I, I hope this is changing. But moving on, let's discuss more principles of radical cystectomy. So here there is going to be good evidence to discuss uh, perioperative pharmacologic uh, thrombo thromboembolic prophylaxis should be given. Um, uh, and then in patients undergoing radical cystectomy, a mu opioid antagonist should be used to accelerate gastrointestinal recovery. So these are in the 2017 guidelines and they're highly testable. And where, what is this really discussing? This is discussing um, ERAS or the concept of early recovery. Uh, and this is coming out of the GI literature and the colorectal literature in particular. And essentially the problem is that GI complications are, as all of you know, very common after a cystectomy uh, and a urinary diversion. Uh, 20 to 40% of, of these patients are, are, are getting ileus within 90 days. And so this caused ERAS protocols to be developed. And you know, one early thought as all of these protocols were being developed was, well, will minimally invasive approaches not also reduce GI-related toxicity? So I'm going to just use this discussion around ERAS, which is sort of in the guidelines, to discuss a concept that's not in the guidelines, but I think should be given a little bit of uh, time on the microphone. And that's uh, the concept of minimally invasive uh, uh, cystectomy. The reason it should be given some time is that we do have a randomized controlled trial, a phase three randomized controlled trial, comparing robot-assisted and open radical cystectomy. And I should note that the that the main the main objective of this trial was not to show a difference in uh, GI-related uh, toxicities after cystectomy. Um, I'm just using it in this talk as a, as a way to talk about this. Um, the main objective was to show uh, non-inferiority of a cancer outcome, which was in this case, a two-year progression-free survival, to essentially show that there is no difference in two-year progression-free survival, which we all know tracks pretty closely to uh, cancer-specific survival between uh, robotic and open radical cystectomy. So in this study, 350 patients uh, were enrolled uh, and uh, randomized uh, and assigned to an open cystectomy or a robotic cystectomy with an extracorporeal uh, urinary diversion. They were stratified on the urinary diversion type and the T stage and their ECOG status. The primary outcome, as I said, was two-year progression-free survival. And essentially what uh, was shown is that uh, two-year progression-free survival was around 72% uh, in both arms. Uh, the p-value is a little confusing. The p-value uh, shows that it is significant for non-inferiority. So that it's significantly showing you that there's no difference. Uh, so be careful how you read uh, some of these studies when you have to look at the, the actual study design. This is the, 
what's interesting to me is the is the 90-day complication rate. And just look at all, I added this into to their data, but look at all comers. The 90-day complication rate was 70, was 69% in the open arm and 67% in, in, in the robotic arm. I mean, two-thirds of patients had a reportable complication and 22% in both arms had a clavian three through five complication. And so this is randomized data of a surgery we do all the time showing us um, what we already know, which is that it's associated with significant morbidity. I also wanna highlight that the rate of ileus, um, which brought us to this trial, was no different in e either arm and was around 20% uh, in, in both arms. And we could spend a whole talk talking about this subject uh, but we won't today. So let's move on to discussing the concept of ERAS, which is essentially a preoperative strategy, an intraoperative stat strategy, and a postoperative strategy to number one, decrease fluids, uh, number two, decrease opioid uh, analgesics, and number three, use uh, mu receptor antagonist uh, as a promotility agent and many, many other things, but I'm trying to, uh, you know, pare it down. Um, this is an abbreviated version of our program at Hopkins, and essentially it does uh, what I just said. Um, we have some, new, every place has their nuances, but the, the concept of minimizing fluids, uh, which minimizes um, edema to the bowel, um, minimizing opioids, uh, analgesia, which as we know, uh, it slows down the, the bowels and, uh, and then using promotility agents uh, are the fundamentals. And what, what's the data that supports uh, uh, this being in our guidelines? Okay, that's the question we should be asking uh, for all of this is when we should be focusing on what's the data that supports this. So this was a randomized controlled trial supporting alvimapam use uh, for uh, radical cystectomy. And in this study uh, by Dr. Lee and colleagues, uh, published in 2014, patients were randomized to alvimapam uh, and placebo. So it's one of the few placebo-controlled surgical trials. It's not really surgical, but it's perioperative uh, in our field. And patients, uh, and um, let's just jump ahead and look at the differences. So what it found, and by the way, uh, this is a trial that can be used to justify alvimapan uh, use at your hospital and at many hospitals. It's an incredibly expensive drug, um, and there's a lot of resistance to, uh, to, to using it in some institutions. Um, and, and this is why this trial is so important, because we actually have data uh, that can support its use uh, in our field. So what did it show? It, it basically showed, if you look at the median difference in length of stay, uh, patients who were using alvimapan uh, at an average length of say of seven days versus placebo, which was eight days, which doesn't sound too impressive. But when you actually think about, well, what's important in a cystectomy, I think most, most residents, most uh, uh, surgeons who do these, uh, these cases understand that if a patient's in the hospital longer than a week, um, something is probably going on. Yeah, there's occasionally it's frailty and it's some issues around rehabilitation, but something is probably going on if they're there uh, sort of longer than a week. And, and that's why I like this statistic, which shows us what was the prolonged length of say past a week. And we can see that the alvimapan group 
was 33% uh, versus placebo group, which was 52%, 51.5%. And, um, and obviously then the, the uh, ileus related morbidity was 8% versus 29%, probably driving a lot of these outcomes. So this informs uh, uh, why, uh, uh, you know, why a mu receptor antagonist, why alvimapan is in our guidelines, and then, you know, how ERAS has taken off off of that. So let's keep moving. Um, let's move on to uh, uh, lymph node dissection. So in the guidelines, clinicians must perform a bilateral pelvic lymphadenectomy. Um, and when performing this lymph, lymph node dissection, they should remove at minimum external and internal iliac and obturator lymph nodes. And that's all that's said. So that brings up a lot of very interesting uh, controversies. Okay, well, what should the lymph node dissection be? That doesn't seem like, that seems pretty limited to me, but why, why is there not more in the guidelines? So the answer is gonna be because there's not uh, good enough data. So let's talk about what data has now, what data there had, had been, and now what data is coming. So when we talk about a lymph node dissection, it gets very confusing very quickly because as you review the literature, what you'll realize is people have different definitions of lymph node dissections. So for the purposes of this talk, I'll try to stick to the following nomenclature, which is basically a limited pelvic lymph node dissection. It would be the external uh, iliac artery and vein. Um, and the obturator lymph node packet. A standard lymph node dissection would also include the internal um, uh, artery um, and the deep uh, obturator nodes. An extended uh, node dissection would include the presacral nodes and the uh, nodes above the iliac bifurcation to the level of the aortic bifurcation. Um, and the super extended would include everything I just said, but uh, the nodes lateral to the external ar uh, iliac artery and then up to all the way up to the IMA. So if you look at the historic studies, uh, population level data seems to support a very small but clinically significant, uh, clinically significant improvement in cancer-specific survival and overall survival with a lymph node dissection. This is just with a lymph, any all-comers, lymph node dissection, no lymph node dissection. And if you look at the historic USC data, which is some of the best data we have on this subject, um, what you'll find is that uh, patients who have uh, positive lymph nodes um, do A, obviously do much worse than patients who have negative lymph nodes, 244 patients versus 810 patients in this study. But also um, the, the more positive lymph nodes that are removed, um, uh, usually the worse they do. And specifically, once you get greater than 10 lymph nodes, the, the mean recurrence free survival is, is very, very poor. Now, this is a study I, really like to help inform the debate or the discussion around lymph node dissection. And the reason I like it because, is because it shows us, well, where are the landing zones of bladder cancer uh, lymph nodes? And what you'll find is that the vast majority of, of bladder cancer positive lymph nodes uh, are, in the, are in what we would consider the extended 
uh, uh, lymph node uh, area. So they're, they're, and what I mean by that is the super extended does have positive lymph nodes, but the vast majority are in the extended lymph node uh, packet. And this helped inform actually, oh, one more uh, discussion point around this is, uh, of the percentage, uh, the, another way to say this is, if you actually look at that super extended area, the percentage of patients undergoing a cystectomy with a lymph node that have lymph node metastases, around 6% will be uh, above the aortic bifurcation. Around 25% will be above the uh, iliac bifurcation. Um, and then if you look at the anatomic distribution of patients who only had one positive lymph node, and I think this is an important concept because this is, okay, well, if they have one positive lymph node, where's it gonna be? This speaks to the idea of skip lesions. Basically, it's, it's not gonna be anywhere near the bladder, but they'll have one positive lymph node in the retroperitoneum. Well, if you look at the data, 0% of patients had a, a level three skip met. So only one positive uh, lymph node um, above the aortic bifurcation. But 10% did have um, skip mets, skip metastases um, in, in, you know, in, in the area between the iliac bifurcation and aortic bifurcation. And so uh, the group from USC and, and uh, the group from Bern uh, did a retrospective study comparing what, and once again, this gets a little bit confusing with the nomenclature, but essentially a lymph node dissection that included um, everything, so presacral up to the IMA and everything in between versus uh, essentially the external iliac, internal iliac, uh, and then uh, a, a several centimeters above the um, iliac bifurcation, but not yet to the uh, aorta, and essentially found uh, no difference in recurrence free survival and overall survival between those two strategies. Problems with the retrospective data is that imaging uh, may not have been as sensitive. Uh, so uh, a lot of these patients were probably undergoing lymph node dissections, uh, I mean, undergoing cystectomies who had uh, notably positive lymph nodes on imaging that we would today not take for uh, cystectomy. Um, neoadjuvant therapy was not as widespread and there were non-standardized approaches to what to do with the patients who had positive lymph nodes. Nowadays, vast majority of those patients would go on to adjuvant therapy. So the EAU guidelines say about this, in conclusion, extended lymph node dissection might have a therapeutic benefit compared to less extensive lymph node dissection, but due to bias, no firm conclusions uh, can be made. So this was the, the, the justification for writing a trial around this. Um, this is the LEA trial, I never know how to pronounce it, uh, uh, out of Europe that was recently published last year that was uh, comparing extended versus limited. This is very confusing. Uh, limited in, in their eyes is really what we would consider standard, but basically extended versus standard lymph node dissection in bladder cancer patients undergoing a radical cystectomy. And as I just said, uh, basically their version of, of standard is this area would be five, uh, nine, and 13, but does not include 10, which are the deep obturator nerves. And similarly on the other side, whereas extended includes um, 
all of those things. And 400 patients were uh, randomized to each arm and I'm moving through things pretty quickly because I want to save, I want to make sure I leave time to talk about bladder preservation as well. And what you'll note from this uh, trial is that uh, oddly enough, the number of patients with node positive disease was, uh, was more 27 to 28% in the limited arm compared to 22% in the extended arm, which is, uh, which is a little bit confusing and difficult to interpret. And, uh, and the other thing that uh, you know, should be noted about this trial is they, they included patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. So, so uh, they did not find a uh, difference in, in um, well, let's just move on to that. They did not identify a difference in survival outcomes between the extended and the limited uh, lymph node dissection, but they were likely underpowered to do so uh, because they uh, were not fully focused on the muscle invasive uh, group. So this is the main criticism of the study is that they found no difference, but there were some serious issues in how the study was powered. Um, this, though, is also interesting. It did not show uh, huge differences in major complication rates between an extended and limited uh, lymph node dissection. Um, uh, the one difference that it did show is at 90 days, significantly more lymphocytes required drainage, um, which makes sense. Um, and, uh, but that was the only significant difference in complications. So this uh, trial around the same time that this trial kind of was getting off the ground and getting and getting done, uh, SWOG 1011 also uh, was being uh, planned. And this is a trial um, uh, here in the United States um, that is randomizing standard, uh, that is only relegated towards muscle invasive patients. Neoadjuvant chemotherapy is allowed and it's randomizing patients towards standard lymph node dissection versus an extended lymph node dissection. Uh, and the way it's a little bit different from the European trial is number one, it's eligibility, which I discussed. Um, and there's some minor, what I would consider minor differences in the sort of control arm. Basically the European trial uh, did not include the deep obturator uh, lymph nodes. And, uh, but this is a big difference is that neoadjuvant chemotherapy uh, is allowed in, in 1011 and more than half of the patients got it. So that's gonna be, that's more of a real world uh, sample for us. Um, and, uh, and we'll await the, the uh, outcome, uh, the, the reporting of this, which hopefully should be uh, fairly soon. So new diagnostics may change the role of lymph node dissection altogether. There, at the same time where we're discussing this, we have circulating tumor cells and uh, circulating tumor DNA that are coming online. We have enhanced imaging with MRI and molecular imaging, and we have genomics. And so all of this may show us um, the burden of disease, uh, uh, the burden of bladder cancer that we currently don't know. Um, so uh, once we learn that there are uh, that there's a, a high burden of circulating tumor DNA, 
um, it may impact how and what kind of lymph node dissections we do. But clearly the take home messages are that uh, historic and retrospective series show that public lymph node dissection is curative in a subset of patients. Uh, mapping studies and non-randomized data demonstrate that there's a five to 10% skip lesion rate where nodes are only positive above the iliac bifurcation. And this probably drives the small but significant difference um, in, in survival, in my opinion. Um, retrospective series uh, do show a modest uh, but clinically meaningful improvement. And there are two randomized trials that have been performed, uh, one of which the German trial, which is reported out and showed no differences, but it's empowering issues, and SWOG uh, 1011, which hopefully we'll find out about soon. Okay, let's um, use uh, the remainder of our time to, to discuss the principles of bladder preservation, which is in the guidelines. So for patients with newly diagnosed non-metastatic muscle invasive bladder cancer who desire to retain their bladder, and for those with significant comorbidities for whom radical cystectomy is not a treatment option, clinicians should offer bladder preserving therapy when clinically appropriate. Um, and this is, a, uh, this is in our guidelines. And there's been multiple studies showing that this does not actually happen, that um, a lot of uh, urologists, to, quite frankly, do not discuss bladder preservation um, in the run-of-the-mill um, muscle inv uh, invasive bladder cancer patient, but um, we, should. We, should be, uh, we should be discussing it. Uh, additionally, uh, when uh, 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 bladder preservation is offered through trimodal therapy, radiation sensitizing chemo, uh, should include cisplatin or 5-FU and mitomycin. Um, and in patients who have residual recurrent uh, muscle invasive disease, a radical cystectomy and lymph node section uh, should be offered. So what is bladder preservation? So uh, this is my definition. Bladder preservation is a strategy for the treatment of bladder cancer with curative intent, whereby the bladder remains as a functional organ in the body. So when you put it like that, it actually encompasses a broad range of treatment. Um, and it, uh, I like this definition uh, also because the urologist remains in the driver's seat with this definition. Uh, we are the uh, experts of the bladder. Uh, if the bladder is remaining in the body as a functional organ, um, it's, it, we are the captains of that ship. So when we discuss trimodal therapy, uh, all patients who are considering trimodal therapy, uh, chemo radiation, should undergo a maximal or a radical, however you want to call it, TURVT, where you're, uh, you're resecting down to fat, um, and we are absolutely sure that there is not going to be residual cancer, if at all possible, and I'll show why in a second. And that's basically because when you actually, I'll go back in a second, but when you actually look at the difference between a, a TURBT where there's visibly complete resections versus a TURBT where there's not visibly uh, complete resection, this drives the CR rate after um, chemo radiation. So in, in, in the MGH series, the, the overall survival is, the, the CR rate 79% in the complete resection group versus 57% in the residual uh, uh, tumor group and the uh, survival outcomes uh, kind of go along with that. So what are the considerations that we, what, what do we take into account when we consider trimodal therapy? 
Um, I, I would say that this is changing, but still uh, for the purposes of uh, education, patients with hydronephrosis who are medically unable to tolerate chemotherapy have diffuse CIS um, and prostate stromal invasions are not gonna be great candidates um, for, uh, for trimodal therapy and are gonna have a high rate of, of recurrence needing a salvage cystectomy. But other, everyone else, um, to one degree or another, uh, you know, should be considered. And even there's there's some thought now that the hydronephrosis and and the the CIS is is more of an art than a science. Um, but uh, you know that can be reserved for our discussion. So we have eight minutes. Um, I had I had a couple cases, but I want to leave time for questions. So I'm going to just spend. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to actually jump ahead and just tell you that. Partial cystectomy should be considered in about one in 20 patients, uh, in my opinion, are decent candidates for partial cystectomy. Um, and that's basically a solitary lesion in an area of a bladder where complete margins uh, can be easily obtained. So i.e. a diverticula or the bladder dome. Um, and, and that's not, that's the exception rather than the rule in, in my practice. Um, and I will just work through this and just say that I'm, I'm purposely not talking to you about urinary diversion because you're going to get that from Dr. Bachner. And let's just pause for a moment and talk about what I haven't talked about, which is um, any biology, which is amazing because that's, that's very fun to talk about with bladder cancer, especially in, in 2020 when we have so much going on. This is uh, data from the TCGA. And uh, essentially what it is showing is that we have uh, molecular classifications, but that these molecular classifications may be, and we will need trials to prove this out, but may allow us to have a sort of molecular staging system where we treat patients based on their molecular classification and they get, uh, some patients get chemotherapy, some patients get targeted therapies, some patients get uh, anti pdl one therapy, and some patients go on straight to cystectomy. So this may be a glimpse into the future, but this will need to be proven in trials before it's discussed uh, as a principle in our guidelines. Thank you. And I just want to highlight that, <clears throat> in my opinion, these are, I may have left a few out, but uh, for those of you who are uh, viewing uh, this as as this is what I need to know for a test, or I'm never I'm not ever going to be you know doing bladder cancer, or whatever. This is these are still the studies to commit to memory and to understand uh, for the you know when you're in your rural country urology practice and you get a bladder cancer patient. Um, all right, thank you. I'm going to stop there. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't have time to go over the cases because they're kind of fun, but uh, I, I want to leave time for questions. Thank you, Dr. Cates. Um, that was a great, uh, I mean, focus on muscle invasive, which we haven't had. Um, we do have uh, a good number of questions, so I'll, I'll just get started. Um, for, in regards to prehabilitation, um, what is your protocol and do you think it works? Yeah, so um, our protocol is uh, essentially that we have the patients meet with uh, our stoma nurse and uh, nurse practitioner uh, preoperatively 
Um, there is, we do um, a uh, chlorhexidine uh, scrub uh, to the skin. We do uh, Gatorade uh, intake before, uh, no bowel, no mechanical bowel prep. And we have a, we're trying to have a uh, actual physical therapy program uh, put in place. Um, that's something that we're working on right now. Uh, in all honesty, I think that uh, we could do more in terms of actual uh, physical therapy, physical therapy related uh, prep for the operating room. I think that what we're doing with the bowels is pretty good and uh, in terms of avoiding wound infections is pretty good, but actual fitness, especially in our older, uh, more frail patients, I think we could do a better job with. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned, I mean, in regards to the circulating tumor cells, circulating tumor DNA, is there any evidence to suggest that a very maximal TURBT or re-TURBT um, can increase your risk of not only METs, but increasing that amount of um, circulating cell or uh, tumor cell or DNA? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very good question. Um, I think we don't know the answer. It's a, a very difficult question to study uh, because if you're doing a maximal TURBT, then you're doing it because you're concerned about residual muscle invasive cancer, mm -hmm. uh, which is gonna conflate any study you try to do around seeding. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, along the same lines with regards to kind of uh, the molecular classifications, any molecular or genomic uh, information that contraindicates uh, neoadjuvant chemo use? Yeah, so not right now. Um, I think what ideally is going to get done in the next couple years is we're going to have biomarkers potentially off of tumor blocks, but also potentially off of circulating DNA that um, direct towards uh, 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 chemotherapy versus cystectomy versus potentially immunotherapy. I think right now it hasn't fully gotten sorted out um, and certainly not based on the typical molecular classification, basal luminal, uh, luminal infiltrated kind of nomenclature that we currently use. Um, no. Okay. Uh, the next question is, uh, what is the role of adjuvant therapy? I'm trying to turn off this phone. Yeah, so I did not, I wanted to, to spend some time talking about adjuvant therapy. So adjuvant therapy is, there's, a, there's some very good data to support adjuvant therapy, which is why it's in the guidelines. Primarily, most of that data is out of Europe. Um, but uh, the, I offer adjuvant therapy based on the guidelines and based on the data uh, to every patient with uh, that can tolerate it with T3, T4, or N, po N positive, node positive disease. Um, and um, so I, I, think, I think there's, there is data support adjuvant chemo. There is a randomized trial that is currently being done, the ambassador study, which is randomizing patients uh, to uh, checkpoint inhibition versus observation if they are not a candidate for chemotherapy, or if they got chemo, neoadjuvant chemotherapy and they still have persistent muscle invasive or node positive disease. So that'll be really interesting too, because you want to give those patients something. You, the patients who have neoadjuvant chemo, who have persistent disease on their cystectomy, you know is a really bad prognosis. 
uh, a lot of times and you wanna be able to offer them something, but it needs to be proven. So that's why uh, that study uh, is gonna be really informative. Sure. Um, and just kind of jumping back to the lymph node dissections, um, someone was asking um, just regarding the complication rates between the standard and the regular limited, um, and does it increase off time? <clears throat> Significantly. Um, I, I think that it, so, once again, get, get to, this is getting into nomenclature a lot, but uh, you know, maybe with the super, I, I do not perform a super extended, but um, in terms of just an extended versus standard, it does increase operative time, but uh, it, on the order of 20 minutes or you know, in that neighborhood, not, uh, not, not a lot. I think what it does do though, is it just uh, creates more lymphocytes. I mean, I think that, you know, that can't be argued. Um, whether there's uh, more significant differences, I think, uh, you know, the European trial didn't show that. We'll have to see what 1011 shows. Sure. And then someone asked specifically, what lymph node dissection template do you uh, perform for clinical N0 disease? That sounds like a McKiernan question. <laughs> not, not Dr. McKiernan. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, I, I would say that um, when feasible, um, I do uh, an extended lymph node dissection and, uh, in, in muscle invasive disease. So um, I'm not confident based on data out of Hopkins. Uh, I'm not confident in my ability to detect uh, CT0. Um, so I don't change my management decisions at this point based on the clinical staging after uh, chemotherapy. Gotcha. Well, Dr. Case, thank you so much. Um, so many people enjoyed this talk. If you missed 